Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And this is our review of When a Stranger Calls Back, starring Carol Kane, Charles Durning, Jill Sholin, and Gene Lithgow. Directed by Fred Walton, released straight to television and then later to VHS in 1993, so there's no budget or revenue information on this one. The sequel that we asked last time, Was This Necessary? And right off the, the bat here, Anna, before we get into the plot or any of that other stuff, something interesting I've always found about this. This I didn't see this when it was released to TV or made for TV. I found out about it walking through a video store, and the box caught my attention, and it said, Before there was a scream, there was the stranger... And, you know, that's a direct reference to Scream. And the opening to the film Scream, like we talked about last time, is uh, partially a lift from the first film. The, you know, the first 20 minutes or whatever with the babysitter getting the calls and all that stuff. And Scream didn't come out until 1996. Do you think maybe they released it on, D- on VHS right after Scream? I mean, it came on TV first. And then with the success of Scream and the reference, and scream, then they might have thought, hey, maybe we ought to release this on VHS. I think that's exactly what happened. I don't have any proof for that, though, because I'll tell you, we've done some obscure films before that didn't have a lot of, you know, behind-the-scenes info, all that kind of stuff. There was, like, nothing on this one. There's very little... It's hard to even get, like, a complete plot summary out there of this thing. Everything kind of ends at one point or another. And, you know, I asked last time, was this trip necessary? And I think that's something we'll have to answer as we go through this a little bit. But they come back to this plot element again, this idea. And I think the thing I'm I'm wondering here is, can they 
fix what was wrong last time because you and I said the the problem is the best part of the story is early and they blow that early and then there's nothing else to say. And this time they do focus pretty much on the babysitter almost the whole time. They do. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I'm sorry. As I'm watching this, all I'm thinking through my head is lifetime movie, lifetime movie, lifetime movie. This is a lifetime movie. I mean, they're calling it a film is a stretch it's a lifetime movie let you know next time let's review the next candace cameron movie or something on lifetime i mean this this is a lifetime movie and this is all i'm thinking as i'm i as i am watching this whole thing i'm now i'm not knocking it per se there were some things i liked about it but it is a lifetime movie and as i'm watching the first part i didn't Something was just off from the last one. And I mean, I mean, maybe if I had seen this one first, I wouldn't say that. But just something about this, this whole one was just a little off. It didn't have like that element of it it wasn't as big an element of suspense, maybe because it's a sequel and we kind of know know what's coming but and i was reading on i thought it was rotten tomatoes or something where they said this this was one of the best sequences this one and the original when a stranger calls and i'm i'm as i'm watching it i'm like you can't compare the two and i was wondering what was missing from this and as i did more research toward on it i was like oh because it's a tv movie this is a lifetime movie before the there were lifetime movies. <laughs> well, there's certainly a difference in the quality, and I think we could talk a little bit about that. And I mean, quality as in like film stock, the whole bit as we get into this. But I guess before we go any further, we should probably do a plot summary. So let me jump into that real quick. High schooler Julia accepts a last-minute babysitting assignment from a doctor and his wife, and she follows all the rules. She studies diligently. She checks often on the kids. Yeah, I <laughs> noticed that. I'm like, I'm like, hello, at least they fix that. I mean, who babysits? I don't care what the psychotic wife says or mother. When I hire a babysitter, that is the job of the babysitter is to check on the kids. So anyway, at least she did that. I give her props for that. She does that, and she also refuses to open the doors for strangers, even when a stranded motorist asks and or comes to the door and asks to call the auto club. So Julia offers to call for him, but when she picks up the phone, it's dead. And rather than alert the strange man that she's without a link to the outside world, she lies and says they're on their way. The man returns to the door repeatedly, wondering why help hasn't arrived. And as he continues to badger Julia, she notices things aren't right in the house. Slips of paper she had notes written on disappear. Doors mysteriously unlock themselves. The children vanish. And ultimately, Julia barely escapes with her life. Five years later, Julia's an introverted college student with some heavy-duty door locks in her apartment. Nevertheless, she starts getting that familiar feeling that something isn't right. Enter in Jill Johnson, survivor of the babysitting atrocity many years earlier, who is now a counselor at Julia's University, who offers to help the girl track down her stalker. Jill calls in an old friend, private eye John Clifford, and Jill picks up the trail of a disturbed ventriloquist. 
But when Julia ends up with a bullet in her head in an apparent, in an apparent suicide attempt, even John thinks Jill's investigation is a wild goose chase. However, the ventriloquist angle turns out to be correct, and he shows up at Jill's place and in a flurry of gunfire is shot dead. And that's about the only way I can sum up the last, I don't know, 10 minutes of what happens. <laughs> we can get into that as we go. But before we start you know, nitpicking it at too much stuff, I do want to talk about this opening, okay? So we both agreed last time the opening 20 minutes were the, the masterpiece of that film. I mean, it was it was the, the pacing was great. It intended as it went on, the music, everything worked, and, it, and even for the little stuff we nitpick, it still was suspenseful and it delivered on a scare. The question I had for you is, did they succeed in keeping the tension high, even though we know what the gag is? And if, yeah, I think you kind of alluded that you didn't think it was that intense or that suspenseful. I didn't. Okay. I, I didn't think it, and I, I'm a wuss. We've established <laughs> on this podcast, I'm a wuss when it comes to stuff like this, and I'm and I'm, I'm sitting here watching it and i'm like what there's nothing there's nothing this something was missing i'm not saying one thing i will um i don't know i i can't describe it something was missing and i don't know if it's because like you say we already know the gag but and then i don't know I think it would have been better like the, I think, I think what takes away from it now that I've ran it through my head a little bit is the person at the door. I think that that is not suspenseful as the, because as we were saying in the first podcast, the door, yes, the door takes away. The phone is more suspenseful because the phone, you don't, see anybody granted with the door you can look under the door and see a shadow you can see a figure from the other side you can you you have a little and there's more of an engagement as we were saying in the first one the the um, perpetrator Duncan he wasn't engaged till the end when she was trying to keep him on the phone for the police um, she didn't engage engage with him because this was set up at the door. It was I think that kind of took away from this suspense because well, she was already kind of engaging with him. The other part was, you know, it was the very creepy. Have you checked the children? Like I said, I, I the first night I'm home and I and everybody goes to sleep before me and I'm just doing my stuff. And I look from the linen closet, not a foot to my daughter, my oldest daughter's room. And I'm, and the only thing running through my head is, have you checked the children? Have you <laughs> and, and in this one, you the know, line you is, know, I think you that, call the auto club. And, yes, yeah. And there's, and the, the thing is, and I think what they knew and what Fred Walton knew about this was that there's no way we can ever recreate the gag of the guy, the creepy guy on the phone, you know? So what we're going to do is make it somebody at the door. You know, and it's going to be the persistence of him there. And there's just going to be something a little bit off about his voice. And I'll I'll say this, that the only thing that works about this for me is the fact that the more he continues to communicate with her, the eerier it gets, because it just seems so weird that he would try to strike up this conversation with this girl, you know? Uh-huh. And that it just gets escalated and it's more and it's more. And it, I mean, it is, it, there's a level of creep here that I do go for. And I really think it's only in spurts. There's a lot of this that's just incredibly tedious. And the difference is too, the actress is not, there's everything about Carol Kane in that first movie. You got drawn into, 
you just liked her because she has a presence on screen that it's hard to dislike. This girl, I don't know who she is or where she's from, but she's not an engaging presence on screen. And because she's not, I have no reason to root for. You know, so what she's doing, all the things you're supposed to do as a babysitter. That's boring. You know, she she doesn't do anything except she's clever enough to not let him know she doesn't have a phone that works. But wouldn't that be your first sign that, like, something is wrong? You know, oh, the phone doesn't work. Well, how could that have happened? You know, I mean, the lights are alone in the house. It's bright outside. I don't know. That just, like I said, there's some of this that's right, and then there's so much of it that's not. And another big piece that's missing, Anna, is the score in this is terrible. There's none of that good music to build that tension with. Well, yes, and I think you hit it on the head, too, is that, like, every the everything with the score and the lighting and everything in the first one, it's dark. It's dark. It's foreboding. All you see, really is Carol Kane's face. It's dark. Even when she's sitting there studying and it's still, I still with the lighting and the music, I still, it feels dark. It feels like it's dark outside. This is like a nice, pretty airy nineties, a brand new house built in the early nineties that, you know, she's wandering around with all the lights on. I think that takes away from it too. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing is, too, as things begin to escalate and he's no longer believing the lies about the auto club and all this, when he decides to kind of spring it on her, it really does come out of nowhere. And I think the other thing we're missing is that there's no third presence. You know, the other party involved in Jill's situation in the last movie was who? Sergeant Sacker, the cop, right? There was somebody else for her to communicate with. And in this case, she's got nobody else. So it's ultimately the ventriloquist who reveals that you're you're not you you don't live in this house. You're just the babysitter, right? Listen, there's somebody in the house. There's somebody in the house. And that's when she looks over and sees him coming out of the corner and runs out of the house and sees like his clothes laid neatly on the driveway. And I think what we're supposed to take from that is that the shadow she's been seeing the whole time has been that and he's been in the house, you know, the whole time. And all this stuff, but I, I don't know when you get that. But the, they blow so much of this again because everything happens so fast. She figures out the kids aren't there, the piece of paper's missing, and then the guy's in the house, and then it's over. You know, it's it's like they they didn't know what they had, and they didn't know how to work that tension again. So I'm gonna give them a big failure on being able to keep up what they had the first time. They they didn't succeed in doing that, and already I'm worried about well, where else is this going. Well, I guess this, as I'm watching this, this is what I'm thinking. This is the TV version of that first sequence. You know, I mean, granted, I love TV. There are some things you and I agree. Friday Night Lights on TV is way better than the movie. Yes. You know, there are some things on TV that are great that translate to t- TV. Um, the but some things, some things don't. Some things are. They they get something taken away from them when they're translated on TV, and I think this is it. This is the Lifetime movie version of it. And, and now it's time. We need to talk about that aesthetic, like you're talking about. You keep mentioning a Lifetime movie, and I think what you mean is something that clearly is not made in theatrical release. That's, exactly. That, yeah, that's that's meant for the casual television audience that will accept no-name actors and sort of trite little conveniences to get a story well, along. I will, give, I will give Lifetime some props. They 
do get some pretty good, you know, they do get some pretty uh, halfway decent names to get in. It's not just that aspect of what I mean by it. I mean, like, like the thing with uh, the guy, there's this real kind of girl power vibe I kind of got from it too uh, uh, yeah. where it wasn't in the it wasn't in the first one in the first one it was more I, I got more of like a psychological thriller vibe this is more of an empowering women vibe and that's why I call, that's the other reason I call it a lifetime movie you're, you're also talking about the difference between 1977 when that movie was made and 1991 you know I, you you couldn't you couldn't make that movie today because look at the way Clifford talked to like, you know, everybody in that movie, particularly the other females and stuff. He, you know, he couldn't be that way anymore. And in the 90s, a woman who had gone through that in the 60s and the 70s or the early 70s and then late 70s like Jill, I kind of bought the second plot movement here where she comes into the story after we pick up with this girl five years later and she's starting to see things missing at her apartment and weird stuff. And she sees the little boy's clothes hung up in her closet and she freaks out and goes to the cops. They call in the counselor. I would buy that Jill became a counselor for women who had been attacked. I could get that. Yeah, I could buy that too. That That's the only thing that made sense in the plot is, is that, and that she had this reputation like anybody, but Johnson, I kind of thought that was good. The bad thing is, is they've taken 30 minutes to get her back into the story. And my fear is like, okay, now we're going to shift it all back onto her. We're going to shift the story again, and this is where they made the mistake last time. But they don't. They keep it on this Julia girl, but they just bring Jill in as kind of the new, (coughs) I don't know, authority in her life, I guess you'd say. So this woman she's never met. Well, she's kind of like a mentor. Yeah, she comes in and she takes her over to the house, which I'm fairly certain is a violation of all sorts of ethics and laws and (laughs) for counselors. And then she becomes like this woman's vigilante. And that's when I started doing the same thing you just said. I was like, this is all about the woman power thing, isn't it? This is pre-Buffy, but I'm definitely feeling that sort of feminist mantra here, you know, from the, the early 90s of this. Yeah. And, and that, and like I said, that's why I call it oh, not only like the quality and how it's not a theatrical release or something, but also this kind of like you said this mantra from the 90s this this women's empowerment thing i'm totally I, that's the vibe i'm i'm getting this is like okay it's almost i mean the vibe i get is that julia is this battered woman yeah however she got there whether it's a crazy ventriloquist or a boyfriend or a husband or whatever she is this bad battered woman and she needs to be uplifted and Jill is going to mentor her and uplift her and, and whip her into shape. And it's going to be a girl power thing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's all about the girl power. Now I'll say this, the one thing they did that I sort of liked in terms of how are we going to you know, move this story forward is that this guy reintroduces himself in her life by hanging the kids, you know, like onesie outfit in her closet. I did think that was kind of creepy. And I, but the only thing that I thought of was that Clifford winds up with that, and at no time do they ever go back to that piece of evidence. The cops don't want it. Nobody wants to see it. You know, they even have a record of the crime. And they're like, yeah, she's just crazy. And that's the thing I hate is all the men in this thing, with the exception of Clifford, are portrayed as just these imbeciles that don't want to be bothered with these women problems. You know? Hence the, li- 
chance the lifetime. Yeah, of, and that know, is that... so that is such a mistake because last time, I mean, we talked about the cops and the whole. Well, if you're going to kill somebody, do it good. That we thought that was cheesy, but at least they were they had like a purpose and they seemed to serve one. These guys are just sort of in the way, and then ultimately they don't even materialize as a part of the the story. Yeah, you know, they're they're no. not even a part of the ultimate investigation. So, which I guess the whole point is that what what we want, you know, what the they think we want is well, we want Clifford to go running down the alley and catch this guy again, right? Never mind the fact that Charles Durning looks, you know, a hundred years old and a hundred pounds heavier than he did last time. You know, <laughs> I know that's what I'm I know. Saying. I mean, the little man, you know, I'm sorry. The older he gets, the sweeter he looks. I'm like, you know, he looked sinister enough to kill you with a lockpick last time. Now I want like, you know, my my niece. To sit on his lap and tell her, you know, tell him what's going for Christmas. I know, but I still, <laughs> there is something about Charles Durning. And uh, come on, you got to admit, the guy has been in everything. He has, I mean, he's, he's been, been in everything. He has played, he was in, I remember what I remember him from more than this or anything else is um, Evening Shade yep. with Burt Reynolds. Yep. I remember him in Evening Shade. And then the other thing I remember him in. And I hate to admit this, but um, it was a book. But my mom is a huge history, history buff. And any kind of, because she came of age, so to speak, in like the 60s or whatever. And um, anything to do with that time period, she, she's uh, she's always kind of gravitated to her stuff. That, I don't, I don't get it. That and the Victorian period are her two favorite periods. And I just don't get it because they're the two, you know, two separate ones. One oppresses women and one's like, yay, everybody gets freedom. But anyway, that's beside the point. But she had a book and we watched a miniseries. They did a miniseries called The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys. And he played um, what was basically John F. Kennedy's grandfather, who was the I think he was the mayor of Boston. And he had the Senate seat that I think Kennedys have had for years. But anyway, he played that. And to me, it, it was he was old. He was fat. He played Honey Fitz, but he played, the character was, you know, was kind of like this, as they portrayed him, this kind of, um, you know, like you say, you want your niece to come sit on his lap, I, you know, good old Irish, you know, Massachusetts. Well, he's just this sweet old man. I mean, like he, that, but he did, but in this, he had, like, I don't want to say it's sinister or like a gleam, he had a streak where how he played the character was like, he didn't get to be mayor of, you know, I think it was like the first Catholic mayor of Boston. I don't know, something special, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But he didn't get to this just by, you know, letting kids sit on his lap and kiss the babies and stuff. You know, he's, he's, the grandfather, he's got, he's got issues. He's going to cut throat. He's going to do this. You know, the best two scenes he gets, he's sitting with Julia and she's talking to him and he's he gets a decent scene with her, and then the the other one is when he's sitting with Jill, and he says, you know, because the police theory always was that there were two guys, there was one outside and then the one on the inside, which would be a logical thing. That's actually the one thing the cops do do well, and that makes sense. So I, I like that, and I love how he sort of cynically brushes that aside. It's like these guys don't know what they're talking about. I'm a real hard boiled you know, cop. I knew what it was like on the streets. You know, when when there were streets, it was tough. And there never were two. It was just one guy and he's the one that comes up with the ventriloquist bit. And I'm like, did they could have only given that to him to reveal. Because if Jill had come up with that, or if Julia had said that, or anybody else, we would have totally dismissed it. And I'm not sure I accept it anyway. 
But the fact that the hard-boiled cop comes up with it, you're more want to believe it because of his reputation. Again, we have to build in so much. And I think this is a, a fault of a sequel that's almost 20 years past its predecessor is you're assuming people remember these characters. Not that they remember the setup of the movie, because everybody knows the urban legend. It, do they remember who these people were? And I'm, I'm sort of blown away by how much continuity there is between them. I, like we said, I believe Jill is who she is in this from where we left her. And I believe this is what Clifford would be. Exactly. In this middle part part of this this movie's middle part how we talked about how it just fell apart the other one fell apart in the middle this one ties not only ties the original movie to this and it doesn't do a bad job of it it is believable it's more, more believable like i said the in the middle part when he meets the woman in the bar i that woman could kick his butt but yeah exactly. you know she could i'm like what why are we wasting our time this why is it why doesn't she just kick them a couple good times you know in the in the groin and we move on and we could have saved ourselves 20 minutes you know i mean i mean this is a lot more believable and i get you know i didn't like you said i don't buy charles durning in the first one he's the cop and he's racing down the street and of course he can't kick he can't catch this guy who's nimbly and quick and young and you know he's the little butterball huffing down the street after you know like he just ate a box of donuts or something Something. and and that doesn't work but i can i can how many cops has he played you know i can buy him as this hard-nosed seasoned veteran of a cop who's now been brought in because he's tied to the first case or he's tied to jill i buy that more than than him in the first one and i think it works the middle part of this works a whole lot better than the first the one. middle part of this is the best part of the movie by far the chase yeah. and the investigation as ridiculous as it ends up by far the most intriguing stuff because and i'll tell you why it's because kane and durning have chemistry together they work well together. And, you know, they had like no time on screen together, except she fell crying into his arms at the end of the movie. Exactly. Last time. But what, what we're led to understand, and it's totally through their performances that you get this, is that they developed a relationship over the years that has lasted. You know, that they have kept up with each other for 16 years, however long it's been, whatever, 20 years, and that she could feel comfortable enough to call on him to come in and help her out in this situation that he became like a mentor to her. And that I liked, I liked the fact that they had such a, an interplay with each other that there was a lot of unspoken, you know, grammar between each other of how they investigated and how they kind of sleuthed around the house and all that other stuff, you know, and I, I don't know. I just thought that was really well done. And I liked the fact that we see Julia do what we thought Jill should have been last time. It would be a complete and total mess. You know, and and that mm -hmm. was the thing that just felt weird about last time. Maybe this is the other side of the coin, the girl that can't take it, that doesn't handle it well. And, she, you know, and then uh, this is the thing that got me, though. You know, Jill takes her to go buy a gun, right, for self-protection, and she ends up shooting herself with it. And I thought, wow, now that is some dark drama right there. I mean, I thought they really had something going at that point. And they had dropped the ventriloquist bit on us at that point and all that other stuff. And up to the point where they, we find out, you know, she shot herself and they go to see her in the hospital. I'm, t I'm actually with this movie more so than I was with the middle of the last one. I I'm not saying this is good, but I'm at least enjoying it up to well, that point. At least makes sense and it at least works. You know, it's it's not a total 
you know, just totally picking it apart and laughing at it. This this works. It the plot moves, and that's good. But it doesn't last, <laughs> and this and it falls apart in that hospital. Yes. Jill's there, and she's holding her hand, and she's like, "They don't know you like I do, but trust me, I know you're gonna pull through this. All you know, all this good stuff." And she walks out the room, and then from the shadows steps this dark figure. All right, the ventriloquist guy. I don't even know the character's name. It doesn't matter. So he comes in then there. Then he starts like beating on. Yeah, him. well, like he touches her, and then she doesn't react, and then he kind of slaps her, and she doesn't react, and then he pounds her, and she doesn't react, because of course she's in a coma because she blew her head off, you know. And I, I'm sitting there watching like this is the weirdest way to introduce our bad guy. You know, because we've only seen him once, and it was in the shadows, and he kind of came at her with the Frankenstein thing, and and yeah, now he still don't really see him. He's still kind of yeah, in the shadows. He is, and that's the thing. He's still in the shadows, and you're like, what is he doing? Is he just playing with her? Is he gonna smother her? What is he doing? And of course, what we find out later is he took Polaroids of her, you know, lifting up her hospital gown and all this kind of you know crazy stuff. But that's when we introduce this guy. And I'm going to tell you, you talked about laughing. This is when I started to crack up at this movie because this is when they took us to the, the let's follow the ventriloquist now. And we go watch his like one. Uh, we see Clifford running around acting who has a ventriloquist act. That's kind of weird. And sure enough, uh, he finds some agent that tells him, ah, there's this guy named Landis. who's kind of a creepy guy. You know, you go check him out. He's over at some dive club and he goes, sure enough, Clifford finds him and goes to see him, but we get to see his act. And he's got like this faceless dummy, and he's up there doing this. And oh, what you is he talking that about? It's in a burlesque club. Yes, it's the weirdest thing I have ever. I don't know what happens in those six minutes. That is just one of the strangest sequences I've ever seen to oh, try to bur- explain the burlesque the club. Just threw me. I'm so I'm sorry. It just it that just absolutely. Through, through me because um i mean i mean obviously i'm a girl i don't frequent strip clubs don't get me <laughs> wrong but I, i'm not afraid to admit i have been to one or two and yeah why the i don't know what they did in the early 90s but why the hell you would put a dummy on there you know a ventriloquist stack in a burlesque club makes absolutely no sense whatsoever i mean it it's that what happened in that movie probably would happen if you put a ventriloquist on the stage at a burlesque club before the naked women come out it was i mean he got, it's gonna be yeah he got brutally booed off the stage I and mean, now in that though and in this one conversation clifford has with this old woman at the apartment or whatever we're supposed to understand the psych the psyche of this guy and why he does what he does no I mean, at least with with duncan he was just insane you know, and we were waiting for yeah. the switch to go, and we got that great scene with him being chased, and he like totally flips out and does that whole "I was never born, you can't touch me" thing. You know, there there was at least that. This guy talks to some little girl, gets his butt kicked at the burlesque club, and then runs away from Clifford in in like total blackout makeup and you know black leotard. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, other thing. Like um, uh, like a uh, being. A ventriloquist, I, I mean, I, I get I get it. But the whole point of, I thought, a ventriloquist act is to engage 
age with the dummy, like you know Jeff Dunham or something. Yeah, exactly. You know how he how he's always making fun of who's the who's the dead terrorist Achmed, Achmed or something. The dead terrorist. Yeah, and he's he, you know was his his saying to kill you, I'll kill you or whatever. But I mean he's always he's always you know like like the person. Old in the dummy is the person of reason. Like, well, Ahmed, what are you gonna do after that? I don't know. I'll kill you. And you know, Walter, the grumpy guy, whatever. Right. But anyway, yeah. um, no that's the person of reason. What? There's no point in ventriloquism if you're gonna black yourself out, put a dummy without even lips, and then I mean, and it's he, like he's doing some avant-garde um performance art or something. I mean, I wanted yeah. to put a hose out. In a Club. Yeah, and like it made no sense at all. Again, it was just it was the weirdest setup, and I don't know that it explained anything about the guy. You know, I I didn't get anything more off of him than what I didn't know five minutes ago. You know, like it that just seems so so forced and, and weird. Yes, that's what it seems like they are trying to make, and they have pieces of the puzzle to do it. They, all the pieces are just all over. The- the board they are trying to make they have parts where they can make this a very intense psychological not not just a thriller not just a lifetime movie about women empowerment or whatever and fighting back they could make this a really intense psychological thriller and as i'm watching this and of course this may be stuff that this is my first time watching it i might have just missed but like why is he obsessed with yeah that's the thing we never know how he knows her with duncan he just randomly picked the house and that was the scary part of it was that it it ran the randomness of the crime was what made it horrific you know which was a total ripoff of halloween we all knew but i mean that was what it was all about this there's no reason like it was he a high school chum of hers like we needed something to tie those two together so that we had some reason to think he would stalk her for five years or, or and then go after her later. You know, something like that. And, there was no reason. And then in the other one, as ridiculous as it sounded, and we made fun of it, is that Duncan did not stalk Jill for all the all those years. Well, he didn't he didn't he he went about and stalked somebody else and did other other craziness and it was just by chance that that piece of paper he saw one day <laughs> yeah you know as much as we make fun of it and well, stuff no that, he didn't that was Clifford's he, fault remember we we've blamed that on Clifford forcing that back into his life so. yeah and so I mean Clifford stalked him yeah exactly but, but there's no reason for for Landis ventriloquist guy to go back after her and the other thing they never explained what happened to the kid did he kill him you know what Thank you. yeah they just dropped that and i was like oh that is a huge mistake you have to pay that off we have to know what happened i know they before. never they never paid that off and i that's another thing i was gonna say i thought i missed i'm like hold on did i miss and i went back and i didn't see anything and then i'm like but they paid that off at the end end of the first line, like we said, one of the things that um, they did, the very first thing, they talked about the kids, you know, the parents coming home to that. And then, like I mentioned, one of the things that caught me on guard, the first one was the body bags were like a sack of potatoes. Right. You know, kind of foreshadowing how he cut them up or something. Yeah, you just or whatever. Apart. And in this one, we never know what he does. And, that, and that's my other thing. You know, thing, do we know that the kids... Yeah. What is he going to do with her if and when he finds her again? You know, like, what's the whole point? That's what I don't get. Mm-hmm. 
And there was no, um, like, in the first one, you know, at the very end, when she's about to run out the door, he's, she's like, what do you want? He's like, your blood covered on me or something like that. Oh, There's yeah. nothing like, I mean, we just get that Duncan in the first one is this sick psycho. You know, we get that. They establish that and they really don't need to establish it any anymore. He's just this plain old sicko psycho. Now, this guy's sicko, but apparently, you know, he's he's pegging Jill, uh, Julia. He's pegging Julia. So why? You know, why? Well, But here's the thing. Once Julia tries to kill herself and he sees Jill in the hospital, what does he do? He follows Jill to the grocery store and starts going, hello, Jill. And starts like throwing his voice around the corner at her. Uh And and that's, and you know, Clifford is trying to figure out where, you know, what's happening. And how did he figure out that the guy was going after Jill? He saw like a picture and he tried to call her again and the phone didn't work you know one of those things again i, I don't know that all kind of i've seen this movie so many times and it still blew by me i'm still not sure how clifford knew to go over to her house because he's that season <laughs> and he just because he, he read this they script. have an instinct they have a sixth <laughs> sense about that because he read the script and it told him he needed to do it I, but yeah i mean that's what happens he decides he's going to stalk jill for reasons that do not make sense why he would care about her because he's so fixated on Julia that he's you know five years later going back to terrorize her some more beat her up in her hospital bed as she's in a coma you know from shooting herself in terror of him you know all this is going on because he's obsessed with her and now he's going to go after the woman that was trying to help her because why why would he care you know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And the ending of it is that he paints himself up to look like the wall in her apartment. To wit, I'm going, how did he know what that looked like to begin with? And how long does that take to apply? <laughs> like, this guy, is, he works fast. I mean, this it was that was so ridiculous. And then, of course, she gets the gun out and gets it knocked away and... He shoots her. That's and I had forgotten that that she gets shot in this struggle, and the way Clifford offs him is he he knows that he can disguise himself, so he just starts shooting the wall, and he hits him with the well, last. Well, something that that yes that that struck me on that scene is it seemed like as he was shooting the wall, he was shooting the brick where he was, and it yeah. seemed like those bullets were just bouncing off. It's because the squid looked terrible. That's why. I'm, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, what? And I'm sitting there like, what? Really? And I thought, like, one of the, I, I'm like, are one of those bullets going to ricochet and hit him, too? Because I knew Julia had or Jill had already been hit. And, um, and, um, <laughs> sorry, I, I got a little four-year-old walk-in. Uh, um, she, um, I knew she'd already been hit. And I'm like, oh, great, they're going to hit him. He's going to get hit, too. But I'm like, I'm, I mean, I'm like, and then this is the whole, whole thing about a stupid lifetime movie. You know, someone that they're done wrong by men and all men are imbeciles and we're preaching girl power and blah, 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 blah. And who comes in and saves the you? The old man. man. Yes. Thank the you. Old because- man. 
I said, Man. this is where this movie completely fails, is their whole premise, they decide to flush in the last five minutes. Because Paul doesn't figure, has figured it out enough to go and get herself trapped in the corner with this guy to give up her gun and, and get shot by her own weapon. And so it takes the old man from the previous generation to come in and save her by shooting the wall. And that's how it ends. I seriously think like a 60 or 65 year old man with a hot 40 year old wife wrote this stupid movie. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, what the hell? I mean, this is like a, a Jay from Modern Family wrote it or something. I mean, seriously. It's, it's this incredible. is ridiculous. Well, it's, it, here's the thing it's written, it's written by the same guy. Okay, Fred Walton wrote this. All right, he wrote the sequel, and of course, he co-wrote the original. So this is his creation. This, this so apparently, he had a trophy wife at this point. <laughs> I don't know that, but I'll tell you, he blows his whole premise here at the end. That's the thing that kills this movie: is that he doesn't know what he's got. Well, if you look on the the picture of the VHS box, the one you mentioned earlier, that said before there was a scream, there was a stranger. If you look on that, it's Carol Kane holding her gun, like like I like you know she's got to look on there like I'm I'm gonna kick your ass, and it, that's what I was expecting. I was expecting her to, and I think the, among other things, at, at the end of this, if he'd have hit her with that you know lampstand or whatever, and then Clifford had run in and they started having a fight, and she picked the gun up and shot the guy, I would have been okay with that. I mean, it's stupid, but I'd have been yes, like, okay, she fine. Should have Jill shot didn't the shoot guy. the dude. All right, I'm like, Clifford's already killed one of these. Jill needs to kill her own, and it's lame that she gets shot and just has to lay. Oh it. no, I think the second, the other part is lamer at the very end when they're in the hospital the- in the same hospital room and they're both awake and yeah. it's like Julia, Jill, oh. And Clifford's looking over them with this, like, knowing wink and smile like he's Santa Claus or something. Yeah, I'm like, look, those are both very fatal gunshot wounds that they sustain first, okay? Secondly, they they don't allow you to pick who you're going to be in the hospital with. And, And even if they did, Clifford doesn't know anybody in that town to have pull with. All right, because he has to come in on the damn Greyhound bus as it is. So, it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. They, this is like they got to the setup and they're like, okay, now it's time to, you know, unveil the ventriloquist. And they didn't know what else to do because this movie completely falls apart in its third act. And unlike the last one where it fell apart in the second act and then the third act just felt tacked on, this one has no, like the third part feels like and then it ends. You know, then scene. You know, they had this this okay beginning. It wasn't great, but it was going somewhere. The middle part was was really getting somewhere for what it was as a TV movie. Then then this third part completely washes it out, and it ah, it just kills me because the, it's like they don't know how to come. They don't know how to finish. You know, it's like they've got just. Well, I think I have a way of I think I have a way of fixing this. Like I said, the last one where Jill should have been working the soup kitchen versus seeing her picture in the paper yes please um i think i have a way of fixing this it should have been that like you said the scene where jill where he was fighting with clifford but jill should have shot him what it should have been was they first off they shouldn't have shot what's her face 
Julia. They shouldn't have shot Julia. And he just built up the tension and he's stalking her and making her feel more and more crazy as Clifford and Jill are investigating this and trying to help her. And then Jill figure, you know, maybe have Clifford figure figure it out give give the guy something to do good god and jill rushes to her side because she's a lot better shape than clifford and and he knocks julie he knocks julia down and he's fighting with jill about ready to kill her and then julia shoots him yeah takes her take takes control of her own uh, problem and solves it herself. I agree. That would have worked yes. too. It would have been, it would have been better if Julia had been a part of the ending. Here's the problem I had with it though. I didn't identify with Julia at all. I thought she had an interesting arc. I didn't think the actress did a really good job portraying her and I wasn't interested in her. I was interested I- in Jill and Clifford and I liked them together. So if, if Clifford had been a part of it and Jill had shot the dude before Julia because she wasn't strong enough to do it for herself, I would have bought that too. The point is, one of the women should have shot the dude, not the dude yeah. killing him again. That's the problem. It's one of the many problems they have with this thing. But, you know, once again, know. They, they do it wrong, even though they've got something going. I have one more gripe that I just got to get off my chest is Julia's hair when she's in college. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that is some awful hair. <laughs> I do not remember women in 1993 wearing a mullet. I mean, granted, yeah. I was only 13, 14 years old, but I do not remember them. I do, I do um, not. A I mul- that mullet is what I wore. And, changes. <laughs> so, uh, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> well, hmm. well, I'm gonna, I don't think a self-respected lesbian would wear that mullet in 1990. Oh, I've seen a few that did, but uh, that's for another podcast for another day. I, oh, think, I think we're definitely at the point now where it's time for final recommendations and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for When a Stranger Calls Back? It's not that bad, but I still give it a small popcorn. It's 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 okay. It's not that bad. That's all I can really say about it. I will agree with that, that I actually think that they do some things right in the beginning to at least make me intrigued. If you like the setup of the last one, if you like that first 20 minutes, you owe it to yourself to watch the first part of this and see, okay, yeah, you know, what did they do differently? And did you like it? Do you like how they sort of spring the cat, if you will, on it? And then the middle part of this is really good. It's really going somewhere, but it's the last bit when, when we introduce the ventriloquist that this thing completely just just falls to pieces and it is unwatchable after that point and i can't recommend anybody see it i think you know if you like the first one and particularly if you like that first sequence watch the second first sequence it's on youtube and so you can find it and see if you know you think the tension's still there but the one thing they figured out is that the crux of this movie is the story of the babysitter the the next thing is can they get it right and that's you know and when they come back to it in the remake in 13 years, that'll be the question those people have to answer. But I'm with you, Anna. This is small popcorn all the way, and that's where we leave it. So we're down to one more in this retrospective, the 2006 remake of When a Stranger Calls. We talked a little bit last time at the end of the podcast about what we expect. Okay. It'll be fun to join in on that one and see what we actually get when we come back to this franchise once again. Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest edition from Filmstrip. You can find more podcasts in our archive section of our website, Continuous Play Podcast slash movies. We've got everything in there, the entire Alien series. We've got all the Batman movies up until uh, we haven't done Dark Knight Rises yet, but that one will be done soon. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. Leprechaun. We've got romantic comedies. So check us out. 
Give us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. And you can also link to us on Twitter and Facebook there as well. So until next time, for Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.